sitting at the house of mercy on the water's edge was a man who met the Savior, so the gospel says. Waiting there he was with the leper and the lame, for an angel it was told down from heaven Folks came from all around, from near and from far, just to sit here at the house of mercy, waiting for the waters to stir. Just to sit here at the house of mercy, waiting for the waters to stir. Frankly, Jesus came to show us how to be human much more than how to be spiritual, and the process still seems to be in its early stages. I would say so. <laughs> hey, Reverend Russell isn't able to be here with us today. He is in the desert visiting with a critically endangered fish. In the desert. In the desert. Okay. And that's real. And so Phyllis is filling in for Reverend Russell tonight. Thank you, Phyllis. Do you want to welcome these beautiful people? Yes, welcome, beautiful people. Uh, thanks for being here tonight. Everyone who's watching on the whatever it is you watch on your phone or anything. And for those listening to the podcast, we're glad you're with us. And maybe someday we'll see your face in the pews. That would be great. And um, we have an important uh, announcement coming up next, which um, maybe you could start us off with a little jingle for that. And Ann Britt's going to come and make that announcement. $34 gets a lot. $34 gets a lot. God is good and hell is hot. $34 gets a lot. Never gets old. I love it so much. Um, so uh, many of you probably know that we are in the throes of our pledge drive. So back at the kiosk, there are these cards. They're lovely. Um, if you can pick one up today, if you haven't done this yet, this is a good idea. You can pick up your pledge card, fill it out, and on the back, you would just uh, quickly give like your name, address, and what your pledge amount is. And the goal for this pledge drive is to increase your pledge by $34 or um, any amount that you feel comfortable with, if you can. Um, so uh, the financial team that was put together here did some amazing research and discovered that if every pledger gave an extra 34, that would keep us sustainable, essentially. So that $34 gets you all the goodness of House of Mercy, the sermons, the music, the wonderful events, um, the youngsters, uh, their classes, the parade, um, just the beauty that is this place. Um, so I don't know what I would do without House of Mercy. Um, it would not be a good thing. Um, I would be a much crankier, 
horrible person, which is saying something. Um, so in order to keep me sane, um, I, I plead with you to all give 34 or more. Um, so um, the other announcement that I have for you is in two weeks from today, um, we are going to be having our Mercy Lounge, which the last time we did this was the week before everything shut down. I don't think that's an omen. I'm pretty sure it's not. But um, so in two weeks, January 22nd, um, in the Fireside Lounge, there will be appetizers, there will be mocktails, there will be cocktails. Um, the elder youngsters are going to help put together a bunch of like cool appetizers and drinks um, and help serve. Um, so we'll have a great time doing that, elder youngsters. Um, so you can just go down to the fireside room after church and just enjoy like some good eats, good drinks, and some funky um, decorations too. Um, there was one other thing with that one. Cocktail naming contest, yeah. So if you get the newsletter, you might have seen that there is a cocktail naming um, contest. So. If you're creative, you can uh, give some suggestions on what the cocktail in two weeks should be called, and it will be called that if it's the best name. So it's exciting. Um, this is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise his name I'm Fixed upon it, name of God's redeeming love. Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandered from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. And thy goodness, I can better find my wandering heart to thee. Oh, uh -huh. 
mercy. As we gather here tonight in your presence and in the presence of each other, help us to open to your healing grace. Teach us how to pray into the open spaces between things, even if they are minuscule, so that your healing grace can pour in where we don't think it could ever reach. Help us open to walk the track before us with dignity, grace, and humility. Help us to embody our faith and walk in the world as you walked. Open our eyes to your beauty. Open our ears to your words of mercy. Open our minds to your gift of inspiration. Open our hearts to your love in the faces of you around us. Amen. The peace of Christ be with you all. Let us offer each other some sign of peace. If you have ever thought, I wonder what it'd be like if House of Mercy's original music leader, whatever the name is, and Elvis Presley were one person, then you'll really enjoy this guest. This is... Silas Presley, he introduced me to Avatar The Last Airbender years ago, and now I get to introduce him to you. Please give a warm house of mercy welcome to your own Silas Presley. Peace. All right, I'm going to sing a song for you guys. This is um, I Got a Name by Jim Croce. Like the pine trees lining the winding road I've got a name, I've got a name Like the singing bird in the croaking toad I've got a name, I've got a name And I carry it with me like my daddy did but I'm living the dream that he kept here. Moving me down the highway, rolling me down the highway. Moving ahead so life won't pass me by. Like the north wind whistling down the sky. I've got a song, I've got a song. Like the world will and the babies cry I've got a song, I've got a song And I carry it with me and I sing it loud If it gets me nowhere, I'll go there proud Moving me down the highway, rolling me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me by And I'm gonna go there free Like the fool I am and I'll always be I've got a dream I've got a dream They can change their minds but they can't change me I've got a dream 
got a dream Oh, I know I could share it if you want me to If you're going my way I'll go with you Moving me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me That's all. That was my only song. Thank you very much. I do this for you and for our Lord. God of mercy, teach us to listen and be still amidst the intensity and chaos of the world that we live in and the messes that we sometimes create for ourselves and the people that we love. Help us to see that every single moment is an opportunity to move deeper into relationship with you, with ourselves, and with each other. There's so much to do today and every single day that we can become immobilized by the decision of what to do next. Inform our days and fill our hearts and minds with your presence so that we can always choose that which is in the service of love. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, help us to recognize and be grateful for what we have and who we are. Help us to lead with gratitude rather than fear. In a world that constantly pushes us towards bigger, better, faster, more, help us to reach for the greatest possible while staying grounded in the reality of accepting what is. So much we strive for something different because we cannot tolerate what is right now. Help us to lean in and appreciate before moving out into wanting more. Transform our reflexive grasping into reflective gratitude. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, we need you right now as much as any other people has ever needed you. Our leaders need guidance and wisdom, peace and grace. Help us all to reach across divides and listen well to whatever truth in humanity is being spoken, even if we do not like the speaker. Move us all away from the mentality of winning and losing and open our hearts and minds to caring, compassion, and connection. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, help us to see you in ourselves and in each person we encounter. Help us to live the kingdom with grace and kindness, especially when we're hurt or afraid. There's so much to fear in this world of toxic dumps and assault rifles, hatred and rage. Ignite the flame of resistance within each of us, turning towards you and leaning in, so that we never become that which we do not want to be controlled by. Help us to resist and turn again and again towards beauty and light and grace. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, give us grace and peace and kindness when we feel most pressed to the wall. 
There are so many people who are suffering and so many of us that have wells of darkness and grief in our own lives. Help us to release the grip of fear. Take all the pain and rage and darkness and relieve us of the burdens of shame and sorrow. Open our hearts and minds and spirits to the yoke of lightness that you offer. Be with us in this time of silence as we remember those who suffer. Illuminate us with your mercy and disrupt our lives with grace. Amen. Shall we gather at the river Where bright angel feet have trod with its crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the
Soon we'll reach the shining river. Soon our Tonight's scripture reading is found in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. You know, I don't know if I'm like this with other people, but almost every time I encounter John the Baptist, I have different feelings about him like wildly divergent feelings. I know this, fortunately or unfortunately, because it's recorded in my sermons about him over 27 years. In 1999, I'm like, seems like such a drag. He's so mean and prickly and not festive. The next year, I'm like, wow, I love how not Christmassy he is because he always comes up around Christmas. But, but he's all locusts and desert instead of Christmas cookies and snow. So not vacuous frivolity. Cool. In 2016, I'm all, I love how anti-empire he is, revolutionary. And we need that rebellious Che Guevara-like energy. Two years later, I'm like, he's such a vindictive, angry man. So male. And then right around the bend, I love his you must increase, but I must decrease energy. He's, he says that in the Gospel of John. How, how non-ego driven he is. How not mannish. Clearly, I'm not to be trusted. <laughs> or I do some projecting. I mean, John does come across a little differently in the different Gospels, And different times call for different words, I guess, but I'm clearly not consistently objective. And this time, with this whole year of spiritual practice we're doing at House of Mercy in my mind, I found I had yet another response to the Baptist. I felt sort of sad for him. I think this is a new one. I mean, okay, here are these two cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus. Before John is even born, an angel makes his parents promise that John will never drink wine. Never, ever drink wine. Or strong drink. 
His cousin Jesus, on the other hand, comes eating and drinking, and people call him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. I'm not saying it's nice to be called a glutton and a drunkard, but I don't know, eating and drinking and being with sinners seems like a more interesting, enjoyable life with the possibility of some gaiety and pleasure. John, the angel says, will have the spirit and power of Elijah, who, to be honest, was kind of a depressive, actually, murderer. He kills 450 prophets of Baal. 450. That's a lot of murdering. And his cousin Jesus will be in peace on earth and goodwill to men. This is a little bit speculative, but since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls around the 1950s, which gave us a lot of information about this community in the desert in the days of Jesus and John the Baptist, the Essenes, who practiced lives of very strict ascetic rigor, austere discipline, renouncing material comfort and all worldly pleasure, Since the discovery of those scrolls, a lot of people have come to believe that that's the community that John the Baptist came out of, clad in animal skins, eating next to nothing, thundering out this message of apocalypse. It fits. And maybe his slightly younger cousin, Jesus, would have been destined for that same track, except he wasn't. It didn't work out that way. Jesus is actually notoriously lax in the ascetic department. He fails to maintain hardly any standard of purity, not simply advanced scene purity, but the fundamental requirements of the Jewish law. I mean, he gets in trouble for the Pharisees for not washing his hands. So I'm thinking on the one hand, you have a sort of rigid, uptight, unhappy, angry cousin, And on the other, you have a warm lover of humans who gets to hang out with all kinds of interesting people at bars and drink wine. There probably weren't even bars. I don't know. But I feel sad for John. This might have something to do with the fact that I'm observing dry January and we know my tendency to project. But whoever John the Baptist was, angry or rigid or just righteous and zen, this part is clear, I think, objectively. The Lord he is preparing the way for, and his main thing is to prepare the way of the Lord, does not turn out to be anything like what he prepares people for. Maybe he was wildly mistaken. Or maybe he was purposefully setting things up for a sort of stunning reversal of expectation. He creates this almost frightening atmosphere, warning people about a great, big, powerful, fire-wielding Lord. And then, well, it's not like that. Jesus quietly shows up, submits himself to John's baptism, and then a little itty-bitty dove comes down from heaven. There are so many great paintings through the centuries. I mean, I realize these aren't accurate representations of history, but still, all these paintings of the cousins, John and Jesus, 
together as babies, as toddlers. They're playful, hugging. It's like they love each other, like they're close. And maybe they did grow up together. Maybe they hung out as adolescents, as teenagers. They were cousins. Jesus, always trying to get John to loosen up. Have a beer, man. Maybe they planned this scene. And it is quite a scene in Matthew. First of all, the setting. In the wilderness at the River Jordan, you could hardly have a more evocative place. Way back in the beginning, after the Israelites had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and then they'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they finally cross the River Jordan to reach the promised land, the land that God promises them. It's kind of a big moment. The water stops flowing so they can cross on dry land. And and then once they get across the Jordan, they reach the land, finally, finally. Well, then the conquest of Canaan begins, led by Joshua, who by the name, by the way, Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Joshua inflicts a great slaughter of all the inhabitants of the land to make way for God's people, a very great slaughter, until they were wiped out, utterly destroyed, all that breathed. The book of Joshua repeats these phrases over and over, like there's a lot of slaughter. So, an evocative setting for sure. And then there's John the Baptist's costume and diet, which are also very evocative of pretty much every significant prophetic memory the people of Israel ever had. He wears camel's hair, like the patriarchs, a leather belt, like Elijah. He eats locusts, locusts are a reminder of the exodus and the plagues, wild honey, think Samson. So there are all these not very subtle references to all these figures of the past. So this scene of the baptism, it's like, the sort of culmination of all these voices and all these expectation. And John is announcing the coming of the Lord here now. It's very dramatic. And all these people have come out to hear John and to be baptized, probably because they are eager for the Lord to come, for the promise to be realized like their forebears crossing into the promised land after years of enslavement to Egypt. They, too, have been subjugated to a big powerful empire, and they are sick of it, dominated by the unrighteous Rome, and they are ready for a change. They are ready for justice, which they might well have imagined as something that would end up being a little bit scary, violent. That's the way it had gone before. That's the way it usually goes. John's language of warning about the coming of the Lord certainly might lead one to expect something like that. He sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized. And I mean, he could be like, wow, I'm so glad you're here. I mean, it's surprising considering your place in the system, but cool. But he's like, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I think that gives a pretty good sense of the mood that John the Baptist is setting. 
the wrath to come. It sounds scary to me. Maybe on behalf of the oppressed, like a revolution, a violent overthrow. John says the axe is lying at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me is more powerful than me and he will baptize with fire and the winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll gather the wheat and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. It seems like John is dramatizing the threatening nature of what's to come. Violence is in the air. But then Jesus comes, and it's so quiet, calm. It's sort of like the birth. You might expect God to come into the world like a whirlwind or like thunder and lightning, and God comes as a little baby. Here John makes it sound like there's going to be this burning wrath let loose in the world. And then it is so not. John says the Lord is coming. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He's big and powerful and fiery. And then Jesus comes and puts himself into John's arms. So John can dip him under the water. Gary isn't a word that comes to mind for Jesus. Lord hardly fits. Maybe it's a really awkward moment for John. I mean, it almost makes him look foolish because of all the scary things he was saying, or maybe he was in on the plan. Actually knew what was coming, knew his cousin. Jesus says, I need to be baptized by you. No, John says, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me, and Jesus says, let it be so. For it's fitting for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness fulfilled in this way. No wrath, no vengeance, no unquenchable fire, no punishment. Not very pure. Jesus is submersed in the dirty river along with the unclean hordes. Jesus doesn't seize power in order to punish the evildoers. He empties himself of power for love. That does seem to be how love works. John made it sound like the power of God was about to descend, and in the face of that, John would be shown to be utterly unworthy. But Jesus doesn't swoop in with an entourage of minions commanding the attention of the crowds with his power and charisma diminishing John. To the contrary, he has John baptize him. He makes himself vulnerable. He places himself in John's hands. It's actually kind of a weird thing for a god to do. But it does feel like it might be the path of love. It might not seem like that big a deal to us because we've heard it so many times, but it is sort of a stunning revelation. The righteousness of God is love. God's whole being is purely grace. The voice from heaven in the story doesn't condemn the wicked, announced the enemy class, but like a loving parent says, this is my beloved child. 
And the Spirit of God descends like a dove. A dove. Not a pterodactyl or an eagle or some humongous forbidding bird more typical in the stories of gods, but this gentle, quiet, friendly little thing. The Spirit of God descends like a dove. I can hardly get over it. And what's kind of cool and crazy is that harkens back to the very beginning, the stories of creation, when the Spirit of God hovers over the faces of the deep. The ancient rabbis suggest it's like a bird. The Talmud even specifies what kind of bird, a dove. Like, this is what the Spirit of God has always been. It's surprising, maybe, to think of the Spirit of God this way. Especially, maybe, when you realize that a dove is, in fact, a pigeon by another name. Pigeon is a French word. Dove is an English word. There are a variety of birds that English speakers call either pigeons or doves, all in the same family. The Spirit of God comes down from heaven as a pigeon, probably gray. The text never says white. Think of the pigeons that are forever nesting in your eaves. People often call them pests. They're everywhere. In the worst places that humans have created, neglected project, abandoned buildings, and in some of the best places, Rome's piazzas, art museums. They never leave us alone. It's all just not very holy-seeming. But maybe we've been mistaken about what holy means. At first, I was a little reluctant to call this year the year of spiritual practice at House of Mercy. I'm, I'm totally down with the practice, but I've often felt a little comfortable with the word spiritual. Like, what is it? Something opposed to physical? the material, our bodies, the earth? If it means what we don't know or what our senses can't quite comprehend fully, I like it. And I love thinking of the spirit of God as a pigeon. I can't quite work out what all exactly, but it seems like that has some implication for how we would enact this year of spiritual practice. Spiritual practice, like pigeon practice. I mean, I don't know how far I'd go with that metaphor, but it helps me. Jesus isn't known for his ascetic rigor. I also find that to be a relief. He's more like, what would be the point of all these ritual prohibitions if they don't lead to, if they don't increase love? Jesus starts his ministry out being baptized. Baptism is about dying and then rising to life, a life that has gone through death and hasn't been defeated by it. Love wins. God frees us to practice living that way. I look forward to continuing to find out what that means. I'm gonna lay down my burden Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Down by the riverside
the riverside to study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study Down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield, down by the riverside to study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more, I ain't gonna study war no more, I ain't gonna study. Try on my long white robe down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. I'm gonna try on my long white robe down by the riverside and study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study. Try on my starry crown down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. I'm gonna try on my starry crown down by the riverside to study war no more.